0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of Salt, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Salt Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these Salt Talks is the same as our goal at our Salt Conferences, uh, which we've hosted for the last 12 years around the world, Uh, And our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Afsani Beshlas to Salt Talks for her second appearance on the series. Afsani is the founder and CEO of Rock Creek. Uh, Previous to that, she was the managing director and a partner at the Carlyle Group. Previous to that, she was a treasurer and chief investment officer of the World Bank and worked at J.P. Morgan. Afsani has advised governments, central banks, and regulatory agencies on global public policy and financial policy, as well as being a deep expert on energy. She led the World Bank's energy investments and policy work on areas including sustainable investing, renewable energy, power, and infrastructure to reduce carbon emissions, and founded the World Bank's natural gas group as a transitional fuel. Afsani is the chair of of the PBS Foundation and a trustee for the Institute for Advanced Study, World Resources Institute, Council on Foreign Relations, Global Alliance for Vaccines, Georgetown University, and the Bretton Woods Committee. She was, was recognized by Carnegie Corporation in their Great Immigrants, Great Americans 2020 list, received the Institutional Investor Lifetime Achievement Award and the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Ripple of Hope Award and has been listed among the most powerful women in banking by American banker. Afsani holds a master's in philosophy with honors in economics from the University of Oxford, uh, where she taught international trade and economic development. She's the co-author of The Economics of Natural Gas and the author of numerous journal articles on energy, finance, renewable energy, and impact investing. Uh, I read all that, which you could probably glean for yourself, but she is an absolute powerhouse, one of the most well-respected and successful women in the alternative investment industry and in the field of economics more generally. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview.
1: Well, thank you, John. Quite an introduction. Absalm, thank you for joining us on SALT Talks. I want to go right to the state of the markets, Jerome Powell wants to retire the word transitory. Yes. Is inflation a reality? Supply chains seem to be a mess. Are they going to fix themselves? Where are you on the topics of the market and inflation?
2: Thank you so much for having me on, Anthony. As always, uh, great to be with you. And uh, and I um, think that you saw the numbers that have just come out on both jobs and on on inflation. Obviously the inflation ones are not surprising, you know, close to just under 7%, about 6.8%. And my assumption is that those numbers will go up, probably peak around the 7% number. But then if you and I were having this conversation in about a year, I think that they would be maybe half of that in about a year. And the reason I think, while it's not transitory, it you know we, it will be not two percent but closer to you know three to, between three and four percent is because um, these supply chain problems that are COVID related are huge. We all read about the problems at the ports. I don't know if you've called up anybody at the port. I had some things coming through Long Beach, and I was calling the port myself, not because I needed to really, but I wanted to know what's going on. And one day they would tell me you know there was a big covid uh, problem and we closed down this section and another day you know uh, the they were you know the, the trains that were supposed to get the goods and you know put them um, on the trains to go through uh, chicago were delayed so those are all problems that were were the health related whether related to uh, somehow directly or indirectly to covid I'm not saying that will get resolved in the next few months, but certainly, you know, President Biden has now got a port uh, advisor that is trying to make changes so that people don't use the uh, the ports as storage space and things like that. So we're going to see all of those things change. Also, I think Anthony uh, and you know, I think what we the three of us are going to find, um, you know, in about a year is COVID is a problem like the flu that we have to live with, right? It's not every time there is a variant, we're all in shock, obviously, unless there's some terrible, terrible variant. So going back to the numbers, I think we still do need to worry not so much about employment, but the very low end of wages, because yes, everyone is saying wages have gone up at the lowest end, but that was from such a low base, right? And no benefits. So people can't make a living on those low, low wages. You now have some inflation. So you need to make sure from a real point of view, those wages are wages that people can live on. So that, I don't think, uh, will go away. And we're seeing the pressures on uh, wages continue a little bit. And I think that will continue with us.
1: So so for so many years, uh, we were struggling with this. Ben Bernanke talked about it. Janet Yellen talked about it. They had set a 2% inflation target. They couldn't hit it. Uh, because of COVID, they're now overshooting it. Um, I'm not overly worried. Should I be worried about this, Asani? How should I be looking at this? I, I sort of feel like this is going to come back to something that's mid-range and normal once the supply chain issue clears up. Or should I be more worried?
2: Uh, I am in the same camp as you are. So my sense is that um, you know, it's certainly a problem. It's certainly, you know there will be some things that will be longer term and stay with us. But most of the uh, big pressures that we're seeing are much shorter term. And I think I am with you that in about a year, we will, uh, we will see this as a very different situation. And we will, you know, still be worried in the sense that we might be overshooting 2%, we might be closer to three, three and a half percent. But that is something that I think uh, the Fed can live with. And uh, especially if the impact of this huge amount of liquidity that got pushed into the economy over the last uh, year and a half, two years uh, diminishes. You know we will be close to that two percent number sooner than later.
1: okay, let's switch let's switch gears for a second and talk a little bit about ESG. The last time that we were together, uh, we were talking about uh, the investment interest in ESG, and it seemed like we were a peak cycle in ESG. Is the enthusiasm still there? has it peaked or do you think it's still early? Where are we with esG now?
2: I think we're at early stages and I think it's growing super fast and what was interesting is um if you go into meetings with investors with endowments foundations, if you sit on uh, sort of policy meetings with uh with uh, mission oriented organizations, what you find is that that those two areas are coming together anthony people who are looking at mission and people who are looking at investment returns and it used to be that most people's eyes glazed over when you said those words you know um impact uh oriented investments and they would assume those are lower return what we have found in our portfolios at rock creek and many others have found is that if you look at um last year if you look at one year three year five year numbers and we don't have much longer term data than that really um, on this area. What you'll find is that ESG type investments have outperformed. Now let's look at where we are today. You know, with Build Back Better and with all the other money that is going into climate and other affordable housing, education, health, all of this is um, one why I think we are at the beginning and the, incre- the interest will just increase.
1: You. You talk also about emerging markets. Uh, emerging markets have sort of sold off a little bit as uh, the dollar strengthens and people start to think about the renormalization of the Western economies. What's your view right now on the emerging markets, given everything that's in the soup?
2: Um, so emerging markets, really interesting. And you know, if you would asked me last year, I would have thought they would have done better than they ended up doing. Uh, but again, you know, not having access to vaccines was not a very helpful thing because vaccines were really just uh, distributed mainly in the rich developed countries. Uh, so they got, um, you know, because of that. But um, what is the situation right now, obviously the US has been the market that most of um, most investors have been uh, coming to and most large um, assets, institutional assets are, uh, all over the world have been coming into the US, much less to developed even Europe and Asia, let alone emerging markets. So you've had uh, flows have been weaker. What was very interesting is like this week where the flows into China A shares were huge. Uh, compared to their usual flows. So I think people are seeing value. I think there's another area of the world which is very, very interesting, which is uh, East Asia uh, and South Asia ex China. And I think those countries will be beneficiaries of what is going on geopolitically and, um, and also they themselves are growing fast. So those might be areas in emerging markets that will be particularly interesting, but also, Let's not forget, there are very, very specific areas in, if you look, let's say at FinTech, or if you look at climate oriented investments, you will see that those are also uh, interesting areas in emerging markets. So you may not want to just blanket invest in emerging markets, but find areas that are particularly interesting in particular countries.
1: I mean, and I I think that that makes sense. I, I, I I wanna talk broadly about carbon. Carbon emissions. Uh, the United Nations carbon meeting, the COP26, that took place in Glasgow. Uh, you held a discussion with a series of investors, policymakers, and climate experts. Uh, what, what's your take on the summit? Are those things valuable to us? Was it a success? Uh, and what is the policies going forward that's going to help the world?
2: So these meetings have been going on for years. If you remember those IPCC reports used to come out a long time ago no one paid attention to them and it was only this year that people started concentrating and if you, if you report-
1: say these meetings have gone on for years I have to take your word for it because I'm one of those people that did not pay attention to them. So right. are we start are we starting to pay attention mean, now?
2: Right and I think that I think people you know, are paying attention. To, you know, it, it's on the cover of newspapers. So, so everybody looking at the newspaper looks that there was a COP meeting. Everybody sees there was this IPCC report, right? So they're not just specialist reports or specialist conferences for people who are very broadly, very, very, you know, very specifically interested. It's very broad interest in the topic. So, what does that mean? It means that if you look at the youth in the U.S., for example you know, most of the information we're seeing and the activists who were in COP would tell you that they're going to choose what they spend, what where they live, where they work, the mode of transport they use based on climate, right? So. That is something that was not the case with previous generations <laughs> and uh, and they are going to be an important power because they will also have dollars to spend and they will be activists um, who will impact companies in a way that maybe their parents did not. The other area is that um, I think that while the climate conference you could argue it you know in some ways it was not successful because we did not agree to stop coal-powered plants, right? we said we would look into that. Uh, In in some ways, you know, again, on the negative, you know, you had India say, we will um, start getting to net zero, you know, in 2050. Uh, Brazil's talked about um, uh, forests and then took back some of what it had said. Now you could say that was negative. I think what was positive was the fact that so many people were aware of it, whether you were there in person uh, or not, And so many more people are affected by the impact of climate in their daily life. Their their basements are flooded, their houses have been destroyed. They've seen fires that were impacted because of uh, of, uh, problems with forests. So a lot of people now see climate as a big problem, not just big institutional investors who see it as a big risk in their portfolio. So very big difference. And um, there will be another meeting COP27 next year um, so it's not so much what the meeting achieved, but the fact that it heightened people's awareness of the problems.
1: It ties into energy. Uh, you and I both are uh, students of the Middle East, and obviously you're from the Middle East, and you've had a great background in energy policy and energy investing. Uh, so what does all of this mean? Tell us uh, about the forward five years for energy and its relationship to what these governments and private sector businesses need to do to clean up the environment. Uh,
2: so Anthony, I think uh, when I was um, uh, a long time ago, a student at Oxford, my one of my professors said, you have to go uh, work on clean energy, which happened to be natural see, gas.
1: Afsani, <laughs> you, said, you said Oxford too fast. You see, that's like somebody that's trying to be humble. You, know, you, you should have said, uh, when I was a student at Oxford, you see that? And everyone but, but, would have picked But the emphasis
2: of. is on the fact that somebody, when I was very young, told me, look at clean energy. I think that's the more important thing than where it was. And then fast forward, when I went to the World Bank, I you know, started the natural gas group, but then more importantly, started investing in solar and wind as a pioneer, but those things were not economic, right? Today, we're in a very different situation. Um, I'm sure you know all of us are looking at so the, if the
1: technology want, has gotten better though right very that's cheap. why you know so it's it's a cheap affordable way to get the energy from the sun now right
2: Absolutely and so your utility company will be sending you an email do you want to switch to you know clean sources of energy because it's uh, if if not cheaper it's equal uh in price to um to traditional fuels so what we're seeing is and you may have seen of course the IEA report just came out And we agree with the results that you're going to see um, that a large, uh, 60% increase in in electricity, and it will be mainly generated by renewable energy. By the way, a lot of that will be in China and emerging markets because they will, emerging markets will sort of take more than half of the growth, um, if not, um, you know, closer to almost three quarters of the growth in energy um, production. And so the largest growth is going to be in solar and somewhat in wind, and that I think is now going to be with us. And as this electrification increases, you um, you will see uh, that the pressures on grids will also maybe reduce because some of this will be uh, distributed energy. So it will be closer to you. It won't be impacted by the very big cyber problems or big. Uh, Technical problems or um, trees coming down somewhere very far from you. So, um, so I think the work of uh, that's the beauty of um, of uh, renewable energy that it allows you to invest in big plants or in very small uh, individual size plants. And you're seeing it's one of the fastest growing uh, at the at the retail level at the you know your own household level as well as uh, commercially.
1: So when you when you think about environmental cleanup and you think about reversing some of the effects of climate change as a result of carbon admission, are you hopeful? Medium hopeful? What's your opinion? Where will we be, be in five or ten years? Will we have stemmed the tide?
2: So I think if we are really really um, aggressive today, so we are not you know, both of us don't use you know reduce as much as possible our use of plastics. Everybody we know does that if we all are cognizant of how much energy we're using. If we start you know, requiring uh, companies, just like they put uh, on, their, um, on their boxes, how much uh, salt or how much uh, sugar they have in the food, uh, talk about carbon emissions, carbon, uh, could talk about methane, talk about other um, you know, climate oriented indicators. And we have a better way of standardizing these things. And then when you put out uh, to buy something, a car, you know, or you're looking at your house, looking at the heating system, you make choices on price, but within the same price range as you're looking, you're going to go for something that is cleaner than not, why not? So as we have more data come out and more information and a lot of energy is getting uh, invested in these measurement uh, devices and measurement systems, I think that will help. Um, the other thing is technology, right? Technology is moving very fast. So hopefully with that, you know, you might have carbon capture, right? So while we are still continuing, and by the way, the net zero efforts that we all read about and talk about, and you know, we've signed up for the net zero ourselves at Rock Creek, it's not sufficient because it means net, you know, that means you produce some and you make up for it. So we need to move away from netting to actually reducing. And, um, and that's, if we start reducing, then I think we, we will be in a better world in answer to your question.
1: So, but everybody's invested here. I mean, like all the big banks, the financial institutions, uh, the the pledge is something like $130 trillion toward net zero. How realistic is that? And as a capital allocator, are you thinking about that as it relates to your investment policy decisions?
2: So interestingly, everyone has signed up. But if you look at the banks, they're still investing in oil and gas and coal, right? So some are. Um, but as an investment, I think as we um, see right now, if you're an insurance company, you are really looking at the risk of being invested in stranded assets and assets that are going to be problematic. So, insurance companies have been ahead. Some of the sovereign funds have been ahead. We at Rock Creek, when we look at investments, we kind of use an implicit cost of carbon because if, um, you know, that could become a very big risk in portfolio. So, just like you adjust for risk. Um, in your portfolios for different kinds of risk, you know, interest rates changing, uh, currencies changing, market, you know, equity markets going up or down, and volatility in different markets. You also, I think, need to really uh, start looking at um, at the price of carbon yourself, because unfortunately, you asked about the successes in um, in Glasgow. One of them was not to talk about carbon pricing.
1: Yeah, and we also know that uh, some of the countries have not really opted in fully. Right, India and China are still, uh, it's let's say, ambivalent about it, and so that, uh, it's 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 not yet a global commitment. Um, do you think companies are capable of achieving these net zero commitments? Are they capable, or is this lip service?
2: I think they're capable of doing a lot, uh, but they also need toolkits. So they, you know, it's some people don't have, they would like there are a lot of people anthony who would like to but they don't know how to so i think we need to invest in sort of more better information if you're interested in reducing your you know carbon uh, footprint these are the three things that you could do um and at the same time because of investment money going in more and more into renewable you know i think that's how you're going to see a big change um in, and that, by the way, India and China may not have signed, but where they're directing their own capital is towards renewable energy. China, India is doing a huge amount. Uh, China, you know, uh, while it's going to be still one of the largest uh, coal users in the world, will be adding a lot to its solar. Um, Unfortunately, you know, we want to make sure that their promise not to sell coal power plants to other countries will stick, and they will not do that because that will not be a good thing for what you're talking about.
1: Again, I guess one of the things that I'm worried about, and I'd like you to react to this, is that you know, the company makes the commitment, and then they sit down with their CFO, and they're they're trying to resource allocate, and they also have a board and shareholders, and they're worried about their overall profitability. So. What would you say to a CEO? Are they are they able to make these shifts and maintain their profitability? Or are you are you suggesting or thinking that they would have to take a hit potentially over a few years? Or like let's say you were at the board meeting, how would you advise right. a
2: CEO in terms of the direction? So what has changed in boardrooms is boardrooms used to say that you know um these would be extra costs today? i think every single boardroom or i should say the majority of boardrooms uh will be talking about how can we take advantage one in terms of uh reducing risk from a risk management and every board is very cognizant of risk management making sure that we are not uh putting our assets or reducing assets that are harmful to the climate not because you know we are interested in the public good aspect of it, but because of how it impacts our specific company. Because stakeholders, you know, people who buy your stocks are going to be much more following that lead that we saw with engine one and Exxon, but across the board, not just the energy companies, but every other company. So they know that. And the other thing is that what you said earlier, the price of renewable energy has come down. In some cases it's cheaper in some cases it is less risky if you're in an island economy can you imagine importing you know diesel oil and oil into an island economy and and producing energy uh, power with that versus using the power of the sun
1: listen i think that's the i mean i i'm in your can i i i see the opportunity and i'm glad that we've raised the awareness And, you know, we both have children and hopefully someday I'll I'll have grandchildren and and you will as well. I mean, and they'll be living in a cleaner world. That's my hope. Um, I look at the economic data. I know you measure the economic data. The recent data for the United States is astoundingly good. I know we don't like to talk about that on the news because we like talking about bad news on the news, but. The data is very, very good. The JABS data is good. The inflation data, I think, is temporary. We don't want to use the word transitory. Yes. Um, am I wrong about that? Or should I be worried about the data? Or do you think a good times are ahead for 2022? Uh,
2: so I think really what 2022 will do that has not happened over the last, I don't know, 30 years or so, is really Make sure that this, you know, what you talked about, this good data, which means better growth of the economy and uh, and better revenues, is more is better distributed, more equally distributed. I think if these programs that President Biden and um, and the current, you know, um, group of um, economists uh, working with him and others, um, you know, are going to hopefully let it pass through uh, through um, Congress and the Senate, where we will be is a better place. Because imagine if the lowest wage income earners have a higher wage, they're going to buy more, they're going to consume more. That means a higher longer term growth rate for the US. So while this data that we've seen is good, unfortunately, it's also um, been limited to bringing a lot of wealth and a lot of concentration of benefits to um to a limited number of people so as we widen that group i think that's really great for even better economic growth in the us and the rest of the world
1: okay so encouraging i mean i mean what okay let me let me flip it let's flip the other side of the pancakes yeah. what should i be worried about for 2022
2: I think what we have not really lived through any of us, right, ever, but also can't read in history books to study what happened you know, in the past is the scale of liquidity that got pushed into the economy, particularly by um, the Federal Reserve and other monetary bodies all over the world over the last 18 months to two years, right? That was exceptional. So one was, you know, between the tapering, keeping interest rates very low and all the other tools that were used. Those are going; to, those are gone pretty much. I mean, I assume they're gone, they're not gone. They're, you know, you're going to have, um, have them, you know, essentially get out of the economy. Given how huge the scale was, um, we don't really know the impact of withdrawing it. I don't think anybody does. And so that's the big unknown. That's what, you know, keeps me up.
1: Yeah, listen, I I, you know, I I I think you know Stephanie Kelton. I mean, sure. you are familiar with her and the research around modern monetary theory. Uh, she wrote a best selling book called The Deficit Myth. I've interviewed her here with John on SALT Talks. Uh, she makes a very compelling case, but one of the things that she says is that we are living, Afsani, in a modern monetary theory world. Whether you agree with modern monetary theory or not, we are living so in this world. I guess my issue with it is uh, having grown up in the middle class and where my dad was a uh, hourly wage worker. Uh, and they were high wages, by the way. We lived in the middle class. I would never dishonor his work ethic by saying otherwise. But I do know that there's been wage erosion. And I think some of it is born from the monetary policy. So the assets do well when we have this level of liquidity but the wage owners can't catch up. Am I right about that or is Stephanie Kelton right that this is a easy solution we could just print a 29 trillion dollar coin and pay off of all of our debt? What what am I missing?
2: So, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that the largest share of the money that got pushed into the markets you know went through the financial sector but the large financial sector a small amount you know did go through um, to smaller businesses but really that share was very small and very inefficient and we saw that our system was not set up to find these groups that needed it to stay in business for longer. Um, so the basically what this huge push in liquidity did, um, was to increase inequality by benefiting um, those who were larger who could benefit, who had uh, you know systems and lawyers and and structures where they could bring in more and benefit more from that liquidity. So there's no question that you know if we don't change that, um, we will it's not just that equality you know you're talking about climate is it good business a more equal a more just, Society is really good. There'll be less crime. There'll be, you know, you'll be spending less on the things that are not helpful to growth, and you'll be spending more on things that help economic growth and general happiness.
1: Well, we're we're in complete agreement. I, I don't want to live in a bob wire McMansion mansion in a security compound while my fellow neighbors are suffering. Uh, I want to figure that out and solve for it. So let's make you the social and economic czar. Okay, you are the policy wonk and you are now able to set the agenda, and we both know that these have to be long-term goals, nothing's going to, to be cured overnight, what are some things you would recommend to the American government, policymakers, governors, presidents? What would you say we would need to do to try to fix some of these ills?
2: So uh, one uh, first thing would be to create, um, in our financial system, as you know, a lot of people are not banked, and they are they don't have access to the... Um, Banking system, right? And they pay much higher fees to just get their wages to uh, to transact, etc. So some of the tools, in fact, we developed at the World Bank and in low-income countries, are very useful for low-income groups. But in the U.S., our financial infrastructure is actually quite old. And, um, and it was set up for a different time. So it needs to be more modernized and we need to have tools through fintech tools or others that make sure that the lowest income people have access to the same financial system and they get the same benefits as other, as the rest of the population. So I think that's a really important thing. And we talked about that when we talked about when you were trying to push some of the liquidity that was coming out or some of the payments, Uh, it was very difficult to help small businesses survive or prosper. Um, So that is a really big, important thing. And then in terms of, uh, there's a lot of argument in the US, right, about around wages and benefits for the lowest income, there doesn't seem to be that same argument about the highest income having all the benefits, right? Now, what we see in Europe is that their adjustment on the labor force was much smoother, right? Um, and uh, in in Europe, because they had some basic welfare systems, they didn't need to push out so much money. During um, COVID, uh, much less than we had to rel- on a relative per worker basis. So, um, so they are in a better place, and so in the long term, it it pays to have living wages for everybody and to have, reg- you know, some basic benefits. And it's kind of interesting in this day and age when people talk about maternity leave. Let's say, and uh, and everyone agrees that you know people should have children if they want to have children, but no one agrees on how do you take some time off to to have your child. So you may not want to be like Europe where you can take up to six months, but you can't be like here where you can't take any time off. So I I think those are some basic things that are two big things that I would change. And I think with that, you're going to have major growth. And last but not least, Anthony, I think I would invest in our youth. And, you know, through entrepreneurship and through creating tech hubs all over the country, I would really invest in diverse populations and in our youth.
1: Okay, so we're going to close this out, but I got to ask a few more questions if you're okay with it. What, what, are, what are we pessimistic about? Let's start with the bad news first. Okay, we talked about the pulling of the plug of the Fed and perhaps straining some of the liquidity and the unevenness. What else are we pessimistic about or worried about? And then let's end this with what you're optimistic about and where you, where you see the country going.
2: Uh, so what I do worry about um, is what might happen geopolitically. So we have what's going on in Taiwan and obviously all the other countries. Uh, Issues that are going on between China and the U.S. and China and the rest of the world, and I think that is the big elephant in the room. And um, and you know I've worked on China for many many years uh, in my career at the World Bank and 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 afterwards. Uh, but China today seems very different than China, let's say five years ago, or ten years ago. And while the, a lot of um, a lot of growth has happened in China, it's going to growth will slow down. It's not going to be at 8, 10, 12% is going to be four, five, three, you know, maybe further, maybe further down, 3%, like normal, you know, growth for a mature economy. So they're going to have the pressures. And that is why I worry about the Taiwan question, because for the internal political reasons, uh, you might have external political events like taking over Taiwan pretty soon or after the Olympics that could be a big issue. Um, for the rest of the world. Similarly, you know, with uh, what is going on with Ukraine, I think these days the, uh, President Biden had the conversation with uh, with uh, with Mr. Putin, but how that gets resolved, and there's a lot of effort going on right now in the U.S. administration to resolve that sort of situation. Not that you can resolve it, but to to moderate the crisis. Um, but the Ukraine question stands there, and similarly. Um, That's kind of a big problem in Eastern Europe, which will impact Europe. We talked about energy. That will impact European access to energy, but also um, more broadly, uh, the growth of the future of Europe, which if it gets embroiled into conflict, is not going to be a good thing.
1: Do you worry about the way we communicate? Because uh, our good friend Ray Dalio was on television Uh, He was trying to make a point. It didn't go over so well. He tried to clear up the point uh, over the weekend. And we're all have a little bit of lockjaw now because there are things going on in China that we probably don't like and we think are unfair. They may think there's things about our system that they don't like that they think are unfair. Um, I'm worried about the cultural dynamics about the way we handle each other. You know, we're, we're quick to judge and cancel each other. Of course, you know people like you and me, Afsani, were uncancelable, right? They've tried to cancel me a few times. They can't. They can't get rid of me, Afsani. But, but you know, I'm worried. Should I be worried? Uh,
2: I think there's no question that having a you know good, uh, candid but constructive and positive dialogue between people who have different views is very important. Whether you're two countries negotiating I mean, in order to negotiate between two countries or two people or two, uh, people from two parties, um, you know, we have a tradition um, in the U.S. of people who are in the different parties uh, talking to each other. And I remember when I first moved to Washington, you would go to a dinner party. You had, you, you know, you had really wonderful conversations around the table with people disagreeing with each other. So I think that is the dream, no question. You know, I know we're going through this phase in our history right now where everything is becoming more uh, louder and more shrill, but, you know, I'm kind of, op- I'm a generally optimistic person. It might be that we go through this stage and hopefully our kids who come after us are going to resolve this problem. And Yeah, they'll, they'll,
1: we'll- be, they'll be less crazy like our, us. You know, we're the baby boomers. <laughs> we have a tendency to be a little bit more dramatic, melodramatic. Maybe our kids will be more data dependent and calmer. Right. um my last question for you uh what's ahead for you and your firm um
2: so we have been really fortunate uh at Rock Creek um we as you may know we have invested more than 7.4 billion in diverse firms and companies
1: congratulations and
2: thank you and we've invested a similar amount in ESG and um and uh, climate and and housing affordability education technology and all of that as I was saying. We have done with one very simple uh, objective, which is highest returns for mission oriented organizations who need those high returns in order to pay their pensioners or to um, do all the good work that they do in a foundation uh, or university. So that is now something that a lot of other people are doing and I'm really excited about that. But specifically at Draw Creek, we are, we have this uh, great database of opportunities to invest, let's say in diverse firms and companies or in um, housing affordability education climate that I'm really excited to bring out and to make it available to more people uh, in a way that will help others who want to do these, uh, find these opportunities more easily. Because for people who are starting to invest in a more diverse firm or in a more diverse um, set of ESG, and impactful investments, initially it's hard to find the best ideas. So very excited about that. And I think we're in a really, really good place. We're very stable, despite the numbers we see on quit rates in uh, data that both of us see, uh, all three of us see, um, we, um, we see that um, our, our stable uh, firm, stable uh, clients, stable uh, colleagues, and, um, and so that is a very good base um, to help work with our clients, to um, have the high returns in a more complex market, but to also invest more in some of these impactful ways.
1: Well, I just wanna, I wanna congratulate you on everything that you do. You. And uh, the only thing I don't like about our relationship these days, it's two dimensional. I see you over Zoom, And I see you on conference calls. Hopefully we'll get a chance uh, once this COVID nightmare ends uh, to make it three-dimensional again. I want to thank you for joining Salt Talks. And I really do hope I get a chance to see you soon and happy holidays to you
0: and your family.
2: Thank you. The same to both of you.
0: And thank you everyone for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with the great Afsani Beshlas. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on demand on our website, which is salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called salt tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at salt conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. Uh, And please spread the word about these salt talks. Uh, Again, we like educating our community and and a lot of the things that Afsani is one of the deepest experts in the world on things like sustainable finance, energy uh, are things that we love educating our community about. Just a heads up, we are planning our event calendar for 2022. So make sure to tune into our website, salt.org, for updates and follow us on those social media outlets that I mentioned to get sort of first dibs and exciting slate of events that we are getting ready to launch here in the coming weeks. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.